This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, the hard-edged political games of Latin America. Rousseff is out and Temer is in as they play presidential roulette in Brazil. And who will win the Dominican presidential sweepstakes this weekend? We'll have a preview. But first, we introduce Chorsey Martin, who has more on the political upheaval in Brazil and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Brazil's Senate suspended President Dilma Rousseff this week and voted to conduct a formal impeachment trial. The Senate's vote means Vice President Michelle Temer will now serve as interim president until at least the conclusion of the impeachment trial. Rousseff reacted to the suspension in a formal speech. She said 54 million Brazilians voted for her and she intends to serve out the remainder of her term in office. O que está em jogo? What's at stake in the impeachment process is not only my mandate, but a respect for the polls and election results, respect for the sovereign will of the Brazilian people and the Constitution. As part of Brazil's impeachment process, the Senate has suspended Rousseff for six months to give Congress enough time to hold a formal trial. Brazil's Congress has charged her with spreading misleading financial information and not keeping Congress informed of all the country's expenditures. Brazil is suffering through a major economic recession in Rousseff's second term. We'll have more on impeachment in Brazil later on in this program. The International Olympic Committee says this summer's Olympic Games in Rio will go on, despite the Zika virus and despite international criticism about the preparations for the Games. The statements from the Olympic Committee come after criticism from a Canadian public health expert published this week in the Harvard Public Review. That article cited statistics that say the spread of Zika is far more likely because so many international tourists will come to Brazil for the Games. Brazilian labor officials released a report this week noting 11 workers had died in preparations for the Games in Rio de Janeiro. That's more deaths than what occurred during preparations for the World Cup two years ago. The assurances from the Olympic Committee that the Games will go on as scheduled in August come less than a week after Major League Baseball in the U.S. moved games due to Zika. Riot police clashed with protesters in Caracas this week using tear gas and rubber bullets. The police broke up a protest by opposition politicians and their followers. Venezuela's opposition is protesting that the country's electoral officials are taking too long to approve a recall election. The opposition has collected 1.8 million signatures asking for President Nicolas Maduro to step down. The opposition wants Maduro to leave office and for new presidential elections to be held. What's the perfect gift for a dad who doesn't get out much? Well, if you're the children of Julian Assange, you get him a kitten. Assange is the founder of WikiLeaks and next month marks four years since he took up residence in Ecuador's embassy in London. Assange sought asylum in the embassy to avoid questioning related to sexual assault charges in Sweden. British officials are poised to arrest Assange and send him to Sweden if he ever leaves the embassy. Assange spends much of his time running on a treadmill, connecting with his WikiLeaks colleagues via computer, and sending out notes on Twitter. So naturally, the new kitten now has its own Twitter account, too. It's known as Embassy Cat. 
The cat attracted more than 8,000 followers in just a few days online this week, and one of the kitten's tweets included a swipe at the mascot of the British Foreign Service, which, as you might expect, is also a cat. For Latin Pulse, I'm Chorsey Martin. Thanks, Chorsey. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Egypt. Our listening group in Egypt was our third largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the United States and Mexico. So we say su karen to all of our listeners in Egypt and elsewhere around the globe. And now, back to the political crisis in Brazil. As we heard earlier, Michel Temer of the Brazilian Democratic Movement is now the interim president while suspended President Dilma Rousseff of the Workers' Party fights for her political survival. Rousseff's main political rival, Eduardo Cunha, is also suspended from his post as the president of the Chamber of Deputies, the lower house of Brazil's Congress. And Cunha's replacement, Waldemir Maranjo, briefly threw the impeachment drama into confusion this week when he tried to annul the impeachment vote against Rousseff. Complicating all this is the ongoing corruption scandal involving the state oil company Petrobras. We again turn to Matthew Taylor at American University for analysis of the situation. Taylor is the co-editor of Corruption and Democracy in Brazil, The Search for Accountability. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. It's been just a crazy three months in Brasilia. It's hard to to imagine that only a week ago, uh, the high court suspended the speaker of the the lower house, the chamber of deputies, uh, who had in fact been behind the impeachment drive and had driven it uh, forward with with great skill. This week alone, we saw with Cunha's removal, the the Speaker of the House's removal, we saw the installation of a new Speaker who promptly uh, canceled impeachment. Um, And then the next day, within 24 hours, reversed course uh, and reinstated impeachment. Meanwhile, the Senate was saying it was going to go forward to uh, vote on whether to take impeachment to a trial. And uh, yesterday, after a very long series of speeches um, that went into the night and finished only early in the morning, the Senate voted 55 to 22 uh, in favor of proceeding to trial. That decision removes President Rousseff from office for 180 days uh, while the trial is ongoing in the Senate. So this was, was a very significant vote. Uh, the, the impeachment camp really only needed 41 votes. So that the fact that they got uh, 55 uh, is, a, is a very important signal. It's important to remember that in order for, the, for Rousseff to be convicted in the Senate, 54 votes are needed. So they already have the votes needed um, to remove her permanently from office Uh, if the trial proceeds in that direction. But the trial could last up to six months, 180 days, uh, and during, I mean, it can last longer than that, but Rousseff will be out of office for the next 180 days. Well, there is an argument to be made, isn't there, that just because you vote for the process to continue doesn't necessarily you will vote to say that the president is guilty. There is a, a great feeling of a need of an airing of all this dirty laundry right now in Brazil, and, and the public certainly seems to be backing the impeachment process. The impeachment process in the Chamber of Defu- Deputies left a, a fairly bad taste in 
the mouths of many Brazilians. Uh, yesterday's speeches by the senators were much more articulate and I think well-founded in, in the, the impeachment request itself. So this actually brought a little bit of credit to, to the Senate. But even there, uh, I think that there is a, uh, you know, sort of a, a sense that perhaps the process has not been as legitimate as it should be. Uh, and so there is certainly the possibility that people who voted in favor of the trial going forward in the Senate could change their vote. But I think um, the, the chances of that are slim, in part because under Brazilian law, the fact that the president is removed from office means that she loses many of the tools that enable presidents to pull together coalitions, the ability to nominate, the ability to target budget amendments, um, the ability really to negotiate um, with, with her allies or potential allies. And so, you know, unless there's a very significant public backlash, I suspect that uh, impeachment will continue forward and the trial will move to conviction. At present, and it's really hard to predict these things, but at present there are only two things I could see that would, you know, change the game in the Senate. The first would be if the car wash investigation that's been ongoing for the past two years were to turn up more credible evidence of corruption by Michel Temer. There have been references to him by um, some of the, the plea bargaining witnesses, but nothing that so far has led to charges uh, against him. Uh, but um, nobody is ever quite sure what might come out of car wash, and, and, and so there is at least the possibility of something there. Uh, the other potential game changer, I think, is a more distant uh, possibility, and that is massive public protests against impeachment that, you know, threaten uh, senators' uh, political survival. Uh, at this point, though, I think that those are less likely, in, in part because the supporters of the Workers' Party have been, uh, I think, exhausted is, is the correct term, by, you know, all of the protests of the past year. Um, there's also a sense, I think, that uh, this may actually redound to the PT, the Workers' Party's favor in the 2018 elections that this may be better for the party. They, they washed their hands of Dilma Rousseff, who was not a particularly well-liked figure within the Workers' Party, but they also gain a very important argument for the 2018 elections about the illegitimacy of the, their opposition. Well, let's talk about interim President Temer. Uh, he has a new cabinet, and he seems to be going forward. Uh, one of the accusations that... Uh, uh, the suspended president, President Rousseff, made was was that he was the leader of of what she has been calling all along uh, a coup, and and I know you and I have discussed this in various times uh, as this crisis has unfolded. Uh, we've talked that it is not a constitutional crisis, but by calling it a coup, you, you seem to underline that that maybe the system is not working in the way that it should. Temer has been the sort of behind-the-scenes operator of much of this uh, battle. Um, his, the person who was fronting for him, uh, Eduardo Cunha, the Speaker of the Chamber until um, uh, last week, 
was was really you know sort of front and center, but Temer was maneuvering quite subtly behind the scenes, and then more overtly in the past two weeks as he began to negotiate his cabinet. Um, the irony of this cabinet, I think, is that it includes people who are in the opposition to Dilma Rousseff, but it also includes people who were supporters of uh, Dilma Rousseff. And I think that just to give you the best example of that, uh, Gilberto Kassabi, who w helped to found a party, the PSD, that supported uh, Dilma Rousseff, is actually going to be going back into Temer's government, into the same cabinet position he held under Rousseff. So, um, you know, in the coalitional presidential system that governs Brazil, these kind of arrangements are, are possible. The irony of the, of the Kassab story is that the party that he founded was founded in large part to try to steal away members of Temer's party, the, the centrist PMDB. And uh, not only did that tactic fail for Rousseff, uh, but what we've seen now is that the PSD has joined up with the PMDB. So um, this is, I think, uh, sort of symptomatic of the larger political problems which beset Rousseff over the past couple of years. Now, um, thinking about uh, this new cabinet, it is a cabinet that is much smaller uh, than Rousseff's cabinet. Temer, as part of a deal uh, with other parties uh, to support him, uh, decided to cut the cabinet size from about 32 ministries down to 21. And um, in the process of doing so, uh, brought on board members of uh, seven different parties. Uh, those, those include people from the far right of the Brazilian political spectrum, but they also include a number of centrists who governed uh, and participated in the Rousseff uh, government. The cabinet has already been criticized because it's large, it is entirely male, and this is the first time that's happened under the democratic regime. It's also entirely white in a country that's more than 50% uh, non-white. And so um, this, is, this is a challenge uh, facing Temer already of the, the sort of um, bad optics of following uh, one of the most inclusive governments, the Workers' Party government uh, of all time, uh, with a, an administration that looks to be uh, composed of white males. What does this also say about the brass knuckle measures that are part of Brazilian politics when we see the, the vice president more or less unseat the president? And does Temer have any of the solutions that Rousseff did not have regarding all of the challenges that Brazil has from the economy to the Olympics, which appear that the Olympics village is not ready and uh, not to mention Zika? You know, I think the irony of the impeachment process is the supreme irony is that um, Temer was elected as uh, Rousseff's running mate, but in the coalitional system that governs Brazil, he was not a member of the same party and therefore had a very different set of incentives, um, which ultimately uh, led to, to what we've seen uh, in the past 24 hours. With regard to how he will govern, this is a more center-right government, obviously, 
but not, not a hard right government. And I think that one of the concerns that markets have today is that their previous optimism about what a Tamer government might mean uh, is being dashed when they begin to look at some of the members of this cabinet. So uh, the thought that this would be a cabinet that undertook uh, more right or center-right uh, economic policies, I think that it will, but it will not be hard over. Uh, it certainly will not be neoliberal, to use that term. And um, so although there's been discussion about privatization, tax reform, labor reform, pension reform, and even political reform, I'd be surprised if they're able to, to do that. Um, there are, uh, there's going to be a fairly strong opposition uh, from the PT and from the left more generally. Thank you so much. Matthew Taylor of American University, the co-editor of Corruption and Democracy in Brazil, the struggle for accountability, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Coming up, sorting out the presidential race in the Dominican Republic. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly 2 million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This weekend, voters in the Dominican Republic will head to the polls to choose a president. Incumbent Danilo Medina of the Dominican Liberation Party is leading in many polls, and if he gets enough votes, he could win in this first round. His main opponent is Luis Abinader of the Modern Revolutionary Party, but he's also opposed by half a dozen other candidates. We asked Christopher Mitchell to help us sort out the race. Mitchell is Professor Emeritus at New York University and the author of Decentralization and Party Politics in the Dominican Republic. He joined us from Westchester County, New York, via Long Distance Line. The polls uh, are diverse, as uh, uh, fairly often happens in the run-up to Dominican elections. Most indicate, as you're uh, saying, that uh, President Medina is <clears throat> has a considerable advantage um, if the election were held today. A few uh, show... Medina just short of the 50% plus one um, that he would need to avoid a second round. But uh, polls that show him fairly well ahead tend to be the more established ones like Gallup. His his main opponent, Luis Abinader, is uh, from the Modern Revolutionary Party. And and is, is there anything that these two um, politicians have that differentiate Medina from Abinader? Well, yes. Um, the most salient to to many Dominican voters, I think, is that uh, Medina represents the party that's in power, the uh, Dominican Liberation Party, or PLD, and Abinader represents the outs, um, the uh, uh, PRM. There is not any huge ideological difference between the two. And most of the uh, programmatic differences uh, voiced by Abinader, the challenger, 
essentially have to do with um, his understandable <coughs> claim that uh, Medina and his party uh, have not done well in being the in party. Uh, he criticizes them for corruption. Uh, he criticizes them for um, uh, joblessness and uh, says he will uh, invest more in education. But these are, uh, so to speak, uh, mainstream populist parties uh, without uh, extensive uh, doctrinal difference. Do you consider those criticisms valid from the party that's on the outs? Up to a point, um, yes. The PLD um, has, as most uh, Dominican parties do when they uh, hold the executive uh, uh, office, the, the major, major prize in Dominican politics, they have used state resources um, to uh, promote their party interests. There have been claims of scandals involving uh, public contracting. This has not led to uh, any major public prosecutions, nor has it affected the economy at large. Uh, actually, in education, the incumbent administration, Medina, um, has a quite a positive uh, story to tell, and 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 it's and credit needs to be given. They have invested considerably more in education, especially primary and secondary, um, than uh, preceding administrations. That was one of his promises when he was first elected in 2012, and at least in terms of school construction, um, lengthening the school day, and hiring more teachers at better pay, um, the Medina administration has uh, a pretty good record to point to on education. What do you see as the key issue if we're looking at a, a second Medina administration? Well, I think the key point to focus on about this election is what it may tell us about uh, the future possibility for vigorous dissent and contestation uh, within Dominican politics. The, not so much what the president would do, but what the uh, overall lineup of forces will be in the coming four years. Now, the PLD, the party in power, has accumulated um, a fairly unprecedented um, degree of political resources, uh, financial resources, and uh, electoral uh, strength. Uh, unprecedented, really, over the past 30 or 35 years. If Mr. Uh, Abinader can uh, either win the election or accumulate a, a respectable uh, showing, somewhere in the high 30%, let us say, um, the PRM is likely to emerge over the next four years as um, a focus of challenge, dissent, contestation um, to those uh, in office. Um, if not, uh, we are entering a period of, in effect, uh, effective one-party dominance. Um, it won't be anything approaching a single-party state, but... Um, uh, there will be e even there would be even more uh, tendency for politics to center within uh, one party where a single line uh, of uh, accepted views predominate. 
I'm glad you brought up the issue of dissidents. This particular election uh, raises that, as you note, but before coming to your expertise, I uh, made numerous calls to various Dominican sources who were happy to talk to me off the record, but were not happy to be recorded with their views of this particular election. How controversial is this election? And, and how much is there a sense of free speech and free criticism on the island in regards to issues connected to this election? I think there is uh, an atmosphere of quite creditable openness in, let us say, the um, Dominican press, uh, the Dominican uh, electronic media, particularly uh, on certain programs. It is not a a country of uh, political or intellectual repression in that sense. Uh, On the other hand, the the preponderance of political and financial resources um, under the control of the party in power um, tends to make business people, political observers, even writers and intellectuals, um, sometimes rather cautious, uh, I would say, about um, challenging openly or with uh, uh, a crusading fire the the powers that are uh, in the executive, legislative, and, by most accounts, um, judicial branches. There's a vigorous press, but you need to be need to be aware of the background of each publication, each newspaper uh, column, each uh, uh, TV news program, and so forth. And this even has an impact on Dominican voices in the United States who might criticize the government. I don't know that of my own knowledge, uh, but that, that uh, certainly could be. Uh, all the Dominican um, political groups maintain um, ties with uh, the very large uh, Dominican-American community and community of Dominicans in the United States. Many hold double citizenship. That's logical to, 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 uh, to surmise that, yeah. We have been focusing most of our discussion on the modern revolutionary party as, a, as the challengers, but there are other challengers in this election. Do you think any of them has the same chance that um, Mr. Abinader may have? Um, that's an interesting question. There are, there are two other candidates with national name recognition. Minerva Tavares Mirabal um, is uh, running for a party called Alianza por la Democracia. Um, She is linked to the uh, Mirabal family, famous and much honored for having been martyred under the Trujillo dictatorship. She's one of the few that has bolted from the PLD um, saying that she couldn't stomach um, the uh, manipulation and maneuvers of the party to stay in power. Uh, and the other uh, <coughs> candidate that would tend to be nationally known is uh, Guillermo Moreno um, for a party called Alianza País. That is, uh, he's a former prosecutor um, who has made anti-corruption the absolute centerpiece of his um, campaign. Um these candidates are, and how their parties do, is particularly interesting because, as I say, all the anti-establishment, all the, the non-official um, candidates, all those challenging, all those three that are major, primarily challenging the PLD, um, are relatively new vehicles. And I think that's why 
um, uh, Tavares Mirabal and Moreno have stayed independently in the race and have not joined with Abina there. Um, they want to see whether their brand might emerge as the pole around which the outs in Dominican politics could um, uh, cluster. Thank you so much, Christopher Mitchell, professor emeritus at New York University and the author of Decentralization and Party Politics in the Dominican Republic, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via long-distance line from New York. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rick. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week for Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website, Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot O-R-G. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant Chorsey Martin and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. (laughs) 